0: What is up, Hockey IQ listeners? I'm here to chat about our newest sponsor, Sensorina. Your brain is one of the most important parts of your body. Why not invest in a tool that allows you to train it? With Sensorina, athletes can gain a competitive edge using VR training. Players are able to go through a scenario thousands of times without having to step foot on the ice. No more waiting around for puck touches or perfect scenarios. Sensorina can enhance reaction time, decision making, and multitasking abilities, making you the next MVP. I mean, if the LA Kings are using it, it's got to be good. With our promo code HockeyIQ, you receive $50 off an annual plan purchase. Head on over to sensorina.com to check it all out.
1: On today's podcast, we are pleased to be joined by my good friend and uh, NHL alumni, Jean-Luc Grandpierre, who I've known for some time I've actually coached his son Denon. and uh, we have a good long chat here about you know his experiences, both playing, coaching, and uh, parenting really. And, and there's a lot to dig into there, huh Greg?
2: Absolutely. I, I love that we went through every single stage. You know you get your coaches, you got your players, but even we talked about parents. Um, and I think that was the greatest thing that he talked about was from the parenting perspective, because he found himself going down that rabbit hole, of the parent he didn't want to be where he's pushing his kid um, and he just backed off. And suddenly that passion came from his kid and, you know, let him do what he wants to do and just enjoy the, the rinks of parents. So I thought that was cool. I think the uh, the greatest line he had is, you know, your kid isn't you, you know, let the kid be, be who he is or who she is. Uh, I love that, and then also the multi-sport athlete, utilizing all these other uh, experiences and then transferring into hockey, I thought was super valuable. Yeah, super
1: fun conversation, and uh, I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Jean-Luc Grandpierre. We are pleased to join on the podcast today, a friend of mine and NHL alumni, Jean-Luc Rampierre. JL, how you doing today?
3: I'm good, Dan. Excited to be on your podcast.
1: Yeah, thanks for thanks for being here. We got Greg alongside too, and uh, you're our first NHL alumni, so that's that's exciting for us. Uh, breaking down barriers here. Um, I gotta ask you first things first. Uh, tell us what you miss most about playing.
3: Ooh, what I miss most about playing, honestly, for me, uh, probably the competition uh, is the uh, the main thing. Just the the whole process of getting ready for you know games, practices, you know training camps. Uh, and just being around, you know, a group of guys that you go to and battle with every single day, right? Whether it's in practice or in games, uh, you know, obviously you get some good friendship, uh, have a lot of fun, but it's a lot of hard work as well. But the, somehow it's weird to say, but you miss the hard work that you have to put in the gym and on the ice every other day. I thought
1: for sure you were going to say you miss playing Monday B League the most, but that's a fair answer to
3: yeah, no, no not, not too much hard work on that
1: one. <laughs> no back checks allowed. Yeah.
3: No, no back checking.
1: What do you think, like, um, you know, you've got a son that plays and, and you've obviously been around the game for a long time. Where do you see the game going, you know, in the next, like, five years? Like, obviously, you watch a lot being on the Blue Jackets broadcast. Like, where, where are we heading here?
3: I don't know, Dan. It's really interesting. To, that, that's a great question because uh, these guys, you see these young guys coming in the league, and it seems that uh, year after year, the veterans are not who's pushing the game forward. It seems like a lot of those newer players uh, are the ones that are kind of like setting this benchmark, and it started with, uh, you know, Sidney Crosby, uh, and then also then Ovechkin, start working on that one-timer from that corner, and everybody was doing that. And then a little later, uh, Connor McDavid came along with some speed that's never been seen before. That along with incredible Aki IQ and incredible hands as well. So he's, he's got like the perfect package, and he's got size on top of it. And then uh, last year, we saw Kyle Makar And uh, Quinn Hughes changing the defensive side. And these guys are smaller stature defensemen. And, you know, Kale McCarr is a prime example. I mean, he's got the explosion that you see on, you know, typical small forwards. He's got the smart. He's got a booming shot. So it seems like every other year the game is changing. And, again, it comes with, like, these young prodigies that come into the league and kind of, like, reset everything and now all of a sudden everybody's catching try to catch up to it so it's very unique situation Uh, i don't know of many sports that are being changed by young players like the nhl is but uh so yeah i couldn't tell you where the game's going but all i know it's getting faster more exciting definitely less physical but uh, it's definitely fun to watch
2: that's really cool i I couldn't agree more i feel like it's always the young people doing the changing they just don't care anymore they're breaking through barriers
3: yeah exactly it used to be uh you know, hockey used to be a game where you went in, and it's like, all right, respect your elders, and you know, go do your job, and follow everyone. And now these guys are coming in, and they're literally changing the way the, the way the game is played. So it's really cool to see. That's a good segue. And honestly, I probably should have just
1: started there to begin with. But why don't you tell us, like, you know, your experience, your your story from you know your youth in in uh, Quebec, and and how you made it, you know, to the NHL, and ultimately uh, into Columbus, and like. I was just thinking about how, you know, veterans kind of like led the way and, and especially in like your era and like well, I think back to like the teams that you played on were like so like veteran laden, right, for the most part and just like maybe your story and, and how you ended up playing on teams like that.
3: Uh, yeah, it was a, it was definitely an interesting path. So, yeah, I got uh, – so I'll start – you want me to start at the pro level or when I was a kid? No, tell – go – I know your story, I could, but, but tell me. i will tell, tell you way back. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Not All right. right. Yeah. So I grew up, uh, uh, Montreal, obviously, it was, you know, it is kind of like the Mecca of hockey and, um, both my parents are, were, uh, immigrated from Haiti. So, uh, hockey was not part of their background, but me being in Montreal, I started with playing soccer. And then after a couple of years, I decided to start hockey and, uh, actually started with figure skating, believe it or not. So I actually did figure skating for a year before even touching a hockey stick and then moved on to the hockey. So uh, it was a little embarrassing. Uh, my dad was not aware of it, but I think it gave me a great base to be a good skater, uh, you know, in the future. Because skating is really not, something that I never worked on throughout my career. So I was blessed with good skating ability, I think, just from that one year of figure skating. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, I start playing. I was not an elite player by any mean. Uh, you know, I played like double A, double B, uh, you know, never been a triple A type player. So uh, it, it was great. Uh, had some fun. You know, my coaches were always somebody's dad. And, uh, you know, we practiced a couple times a week and played, you know, 30 games a season, maybe uh, including tournaments, maybe plus tournaments. And, uh, but one thing that's funny you asked me, one thing I've noticed is the group of kids I grew up playing with and against, uh, although we were all, you know, some kind of like not super competitive, but, you know, not rec league as well, uh, a lot of them end up NHL players. So, you know, you you look at the Marty Biron, the uh, Danny Briere, the, uh, I'm trying to think, Roberto Luongo, JP Dumont, Danny ML, all these guys are guys that I've played against or with. Uh, J.S. Jaguar was my goalie. Uh, I mean, these are guys that, you know, and we all ended up in the the NHL, and it's kind of weird that this whole group really made it all the way to the NHL, but it was literally, you know, hockey was not our life. Uh, We loved hockey, but it was more a sport that we played for fun. And uh, somehow we all ended up, uh, you know, at the, the highest level, which is very interesting. But anyway, so that took me to junior hockey. And junior hockey was a lot of learning. Uh, I remember my first year, I was underage. I was 16 years old. That's That was the first year that they did the uh, underage draft. So I went from playing A AA uh, to playing major junior against 21 years old. So, uh, you know, up to 20-year-old, 20 21 years old. So it was a big wow. adjustment. I was about six foot and 155 pounds and being a physical guy in Bantam and I mean, having to play against men, it was definitely a big adjustment uh, going up there. And then uh, from there on played the uh, two year of junior, got drafted in the NHL, then finished my junior career two years later. So I played four years, total junior and then turned pro. Uh, got drafted by the St. Louis Blues and never played with the Blues, went to one camp, and they traded me to Buffalo. And then Buffalo is really when I grew up as a young man, young pro, the organization. So, you know, we had, uh, you know, the Michael Peccas, Dominic Hasheks, you know, like a lot of really of good veterans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, James Patrick. So a lot of good veterans there that really surrounded me. Uh, you know, that's really where I learned how to develop as a young uh, player and uh, especially as a young professional. And, uh, from Buffalo went on, uh, you know, to Columbus, obviously where I played for four years and then, uh, finished up in, uh, Washington, DC. And then after that, I can keep going, Dan, uh, went over and played in Europe for, I want to say seven years. And those were probably my, you know, the most fun I've had playing hockey where, you know, I was in Europe and, uh, I had a chance to obviously a cultural aspect of it was great. Uh, Learning about the international game was definitely something that was really, really big. And that really opened my eyes on skill development because there's some skills that, especially in my era, you know, that in North America, we didn't really uh, learn and that was not really thought. And, you know, all of a sudden I'm in my early thirties in Europe and relearning the game a completely different way. And now you're seeing all of that made it across to uh, North America. And that's what we see in the NHL now.
2: That's fascinating. Well, Maybe what were some of those things that uh, they had over in Europe that you opened your eyes to? Because I feel like almost all people that become coaches from a playing day standpoint feel like they were better those four or five years after they stopped playing because they learned so much about the game, and and it seems like you got it at the end of your career, and that probably extended it as well.
3: Yeah, and it's, it's almost like when you're getting older and you're like, okay, I'm about to retire, and you're like, Dang, I wish I would have known that 10 years ago because, uh, so for me, the biggest eye-opener was uh, when I was in uh, Lexon and in Malmo in Sweden. And we had, uh, so when I was in Lexon, just to give you an idea, uh, we had uh, Philip Forsberg, uh, that was a young ki- kid on the team. Uh, Oliver Ekman-Larsen was a defenseman on the team as well. Uh, Victor Rask. Uh, who ended up being a second round pick as well uh, was on the team. So we had a lot of young talent and uh, I was trying to figure out why is this small town can develop, you know, so much talent. And I went and watched practice. And uh, one of the things that's interesting in in the U S is we see USA hockey pushing on it a little bit more now about small uh, ice, you know, drills, right? So not using the full ice for, for practices, And in Europe, they have more ice rinks than you can dream of. But somehow, a lot of the practices, even all the way to junior, they would be using a quarter of the ice, maybe a fifth of the ice for some of their drills. And it doesn't make sense when you look at, you know, the size of the ice in Europe, obviously being larger than here in the United States. Why are they doing this? And as you're watching these young guys skate with the puck, you know, they're 17, 18 years old, playing against men, uh, you know, at a professional level, and they never look down on the ice. Their head is always up. They can shoot the puck and see what's going on with literally scanning the ice 24-7, never looking down, uh, being great skaters. Uh, Those small area drills uh, definitely paid up, and, you know, you see it right away when you see these European guys come European guys used to come to you know North America and they're like oh we don't know if they're going to adjust to the small ice it's not a problem anymore because they're used to to play an even smaller ice surface in practices obviously just because of those drills. What
1: was the adjustment like for you going from the smaller ice to the big ice?
3: For me it wasn't much of a it was not that big of an adjustment. Because figure skating. uh, yeah exactly so figure skating and uh, you know being a good skater definitely helps getting from point a to point b uh so i never really got burnt that way Uh, i think the reads was definitely uh the biggest thing because you know all of a sudden i went from you know playing in the states where you know at average as a defenseman 15 16 minutes a game which is not much by today's standard and then going to europe where i was playing you know 22 23 minute every game With the ice being larger, I couldn't chase around like a crazy maniac. I couldn't run out of gas. I was getting older as well. So you learn to read the game a little better. And uh, so the adjustment, I would say, was probably a week, two weeks. uh, And then uh, I was okay after that.
1: I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago when you were telling us about your childhood and your growth what do you attribute all of those players from Quebec in that same area? And and like you said, it wasn't like it was like, um, you know, like a triple A super team or something that you see today. Like what made, you know, that group so successful? And like, what do you, what do you attribute that to?
3: I think uh, this is going to sound cheesy, but I think the fun, the, the aspect of just having fun and going to practice and, You know, there was no, you know, you need to win this game. And, uh, you know, everybody was playing. And, yes, when games were getting tight, the bench maybe could get shortened up. But uh, there was a lot of internal competition within the teams. But there was also we're playing against great competition. And that's one of the things, you know, with travel hockey, unfortunately, in the States. And I was talking to a parent at the Triller the other day and said, yeah, he, he was in Minnesota with his son this weekend for, you know, just like a showcase. And for me, it just makes no sense because I never traveled more than like 30, 45 minutes from my house to play any games unless it was a tournament. And I was like, is it really worth it as a parent? And I'm glad my parents didn't have to go through it. But I think the fact that there was so much talent or maybe just so many players in one area that we could play very competitive teams within the city was, was a big advantage. And I think, uh, the way the game was thought was great because it was just an activity. You know, it was a city-ran type, uh, you know, league. So there was not, you know, there was no politics involved. There was, it was just fun for the players. And I think uh, if the kids are having fun, they're going to develop. Uh, the minute it becomes a burden on them, that's when it's not so much fun. And that's how you see a lot of kids, you know, getting around that 14, 15-year-old age, and they're burnt out because, you know, unfortunately, hockey is also a business, and now you see some of these young guys, they're on the ice 12 months a year. Uh, You know, I grew up being on the ice from September to March, maybe early April. Yeah, I think earlier April were state championships. And then after that, it was, you know, I put my gear away. I play soccer, baseball basketball, whatever it is. And then, you know, first week of September, I'll go in the basement, find my hockey equipment and be like, all right, let's go back on the ice. And I literally did that all the way till I was 16. So, you know, even my very first junior camp, I think I started skating a week before that. I didn't do specialized training in the summer, being on the ice. It was a completely different game. So you really didn't get burnt as a young kid with hockey, 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 hockey or whatever sport you played 12 months a year.
2: That's amazing. I I love that fact. I know Gretzky was the same way. He uh, put his bag away in the summer, greatest player of all time, threw his bag in the garage, didn't know where any of his stuff was and played baseball. Um, And actually he wanted to be a baseball player. He says it today. He's like, I way would have rather been a baseball player than a hockey player. I just happened to realize that I was a much better hockey player.
3: Yeah, I'm glad he picked hockey because he, he changed the game quite a bit. Yeah, for me, it was soccer. Honestly, uh, I want to say, yeah, my 16-year-old year, uh, I had to pick between going – actually, I was 15. I had to pick between going to mid triple A camp and going to uh, the national team for soccer. Uh, training camp, which was in Mexico that year, which I ended up going to the Midget A camp and I didn't make the team. So I went back and played Banham. So uh, that's how I ended up, you know, dropping soccer altogether and going to hockey. Literally, I did not touch a soccer ball after that. But yeah, I was a dual sport athlete as well. Uh, I, I think it's just great because you can take some things from one sport, and integrate in another sport. And for me, when you think about it, you know, being a soccer player and running around all summer. That was my training, I guess, cardio wise for hockey.
2: Yeah. I'm a big soccer guy myself. I, I picked it up late in life because, uh, the college I went to university of Akron, my freshman year, they won the national title in soccer. And I think That's seven right. guys ended up going on to the U S national team. Um, and they're, they're so, so good. So I, I picked it up and I realized how much transferred to hockey, um, there were so many elements of the vision and how the movements went that were so similar to hockey um, just adding that element of going over the top i started throwing pucks over the top and allowing fast teammates to get under i felt like my vision got way better when i picked up soccer so i think there's even beyond just the cardio there's that cognitive ability to develop
3: yeah absolutely yeah yes you have more players on the soccer field sometimes it's a little like slower pace but yeah you learn to read's quite a bit on the soccer field because It's not like hockey where you can, oh, boy, I missed this tackle. Now i got to recover. You can't run, you know, 300 feet like you can catch up to someone on the ice. So, uh, like you said, that cognitive, uh, you know, ability to be able to work on your angles. What's the the shortest point for me to go from point A to, you know, take that shooting lane away on the soccer field compared to the ice is very similar. On a bigger, you know, it's it's on a bigger – you know, surface obviously, but you learn a lot about these reads as well. Absolutely, Greg.
1: I'm curious, uh, so you mentioned like the showcase and the conversation you had with this parent at Chiller. Like what so that's like a how not to, right? And like modern day hockey parenting, I'm kinda of, I'm with you on that. What what would be some advice that you might give like a uh, a miscellaneous parent if you like ran into them at Chiller? Like what would you tell them?
3: What would I tell him? Oh boy. Or, or what would you <laughs>
1: tell them if you could say whatever was on your mind? You know what I mean?
3: Yeah. So, Dan, you know me because i yeah. have coached my son, Dan. So I will tell you. And I, I have a lot of parents that came to Belfry. And, you know, I've talked to me now that they're kids in high school. And uh, Toby Cruel came to me. And his son is going to be a sophomore in high school. And he said, man, he's like I learned the biggest lesson from you watching you with Dan And I said, what was that? He's like, I used to be so hard on my son and I could see him starting to get frustrated. And now he's playing and he's having so much fun because I backed away. And for me, that's it. As a parent, don't want it more than your kid. And unfortunately, and I think, it's, you know, you see it in anywhere. You know, my daughter, when we lived in Boston, she was in, uh, cheerleading and I remember my wife went to one you know I had the ad game so I, I didn't go but she was at a casino and they had a cheerleading thing and she said the parents were absolutely nuts and it's like they want it more than the kids want it and unfortunately you see that in sport now it can be soccer it can be basketball it can be football right you everybody you hope their kids gonna turn into a great athlete and is going to be you know uh you know, a pro or in the NFL or in the NBA or in the NHL, whatever sport that may be, but let the kid develop at his own pace and find his path. You can give him all the opportunities, right? You can buy him the equipment get him the ice time, but don't push it on them. I was guilty of it. I coached then in his first year of hockey when it was a squirt and it was an absolute nightmare. And my wife said, this, this should be fun. I said, yeah, it's going to be awesome. And then halfway through the year, I said, I'll never coach him again. And she said, why? I said, it's not fair for him because I'm harder on him than on the other kids. And it's just, he's not having fun. I just want to go to a rink and be a dad. And just, I want him to get in the car. If he wants to talk to me about the game, we'll talk about it, but I don't want to be that coach, right? Driving home and said, you should sit, you should have done this instead of this and you should have done this. Because that's not fun. And that's now I was raised. My dad, he'd bring me to the rink and he'd say, hey, how was the game? And I'd say it was good. It was bad. He had no clue what was going on in the ice. And that's what I appreciated. And I want to give the same thing to my son. And I just wanted him and I want all the parents, hopefully, to learn, hey, your kid has a coach. The coach most likely knows more than you or less than you. But at the end of the day, he is their coach. Let the coach do their thing and just bring your kid to the rink. Pay your dues and have the, let the kid have fun. Just be a parent. Stop being a coach or a personal trainer to your kid.
2: Wow. That, that is well said. And I think that's absolutely huge. I don't know how many parents I see that want it more than the kids. And you're exactly right. Sooner or later, it just kind of burns out. Um, But if the kid initiates, if they go so much further and, and exactly how the car ride went with you, I think probably how it should go with every kid and parent on the way home. How was the, how was the game? you know, encourage, right. oh, I really like you did X, Y, Z. Uh, all the other stuff, you know, just turns them off from, from the game and, and giving the enjoyment from it. So uh, right. that, that's well it, said.
3: It, it's just tough not to get caught up because I'll tell you, I'm guilty. So I do real estate and I remember selling a house and my buyer in their basement, the, the seller had this synthetic ice rink. And I was like, this is sweet. And they're like, we're going to get rid of it because we want to put a gym down there. So I said, I'll buy it from you. So I bought all this synthetic ice and I put it in my basement, build the boards and everything. I was like, Denon, look at this. I got your own hockey training center. And it was so frustrating because he could not shoot the puck to save his life and he never used it. And I was like, go work on your shot. Go work on your shot. And after a while, I was like, listen to me. I want it more than you want. So I stopped. That thing collected dust for three years. Dan, you coached then, you coached and that shot wasn't going anywhere. You, you had a rocket. What are you talking about? Yeah, right. Well, now he goes down there. Now he's in high school. He goes down there by himself and uses it all the time, man. Honestly, whether he's there or not, I don't care. But at the beginning when I built it, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm that parent. But I was just trying to give him the resources because as a kid, I remember. I was shooting tennis ball in my basement and it was dragging my dad nuts. And I wish I would have had something like that. So I provided to my son, but he's not me. So even myself, I catch myself sometime being that parent, but you just have to control it. And, you know, thankfully my wife is there to remind me like, Hey, let the kid be. And it works out pretty well.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I can say like, from my own experiences just with you and with the program, like, I don't even think that you needed to say that out loud because people, you know, they know who you are, obviously. And when they see you, like, I don't want to say you're apathetic, but when you're like, you're not the one pushing Denon, that really, you know, leaves a mark on them because they're like, well, I didn't play in the NHL and he did and he's not even pushing, you know, like his kid to be like something that he's not even interested in or whatever. So I think that there's, I think there's a lot, I think there's a lot there. Um, Okay, so we've got advice for, for, Parents, let your kid, uh, you know, kind of carve out his or her own path. We've got advice for players, which is go have fun. How about some advice for a coach?
3: For coach? <laughs> I would say for coaches, yes, winning is great. Uh, losing sometimes sucks. But losing is a great lesson for kids because nowadays uh, – our kids love success. Uh, you know, everybody loves success, but I think you learn through defeat much more about building character, uh, how to bounce back, and really seeing improvement. Uh, you know, if you're on the team that wins, you know, 40 games a year and then you lose one game a year, uh, that one game feels miserable, but you don't really enjoy your success as much because that's, that's the norm. And yes, it's great, but uh, I remember one year I was in soccer, not in hockey. We and I still have that picture in my basement of my parents when I go home because they have like the you know this this museum of Jean Luc Grandpierre of all the medals and trophies I've won because they you know they're kind of like parents, so they're hoarders, and I'm an only child, and I have this picture I'll never forget. Uh, I was probably eight years old, and we were we end up being the state champion that year, but we did not lose a single game all season. and on the team picture day we lost and everybody's eyes were red because we're all crying and it was an irrelevant game. it was not a playoff game. we lost it and it hurt us that much. And after that we learned from that. But I think when you're on a team and the beginning of the season and this is my favorite scenario, season starts and as a coach, you're getting players that may not be the best players, but you see the work ethic, they're listening to you. Take these kids before the kid that skates fat, scores a lot of goal and kind of does his own thing because your group will grow so much better with these guys that will listen to you because if they're listening, they want to get better. When you have some good players, sometimes they think they know it all. They're going to do their own thing. It's really hard to mesh a team together. So as a coach, I say lean toward developing young athletes and young, you know, players instead of taking the cream of the crop and try to run the score everywhere. It is so much more rewarding as a coach to see the improvement from the beginning of the year till the end of the year instead of, you know, seeing guys, you know, on top of their game and train camp, but a lot of times these guys will they'll plateau by November and the only reason they plateau is because they're so good compared to the rest of the guys that they don't want to learn anymore. They're not going to listen because they think they got it all figured out. So as a coach, of course, have your kids have fun. They still need to listen. It needs to be serious sometimes, but really work on developing your players more than just winning, winning, winning games.
2: What you just said is, is so critical. It, it's not all about the wins. You, you can win when you lose just based on the development. Those are some of my favorite games is when we lose, because you can see the kids are, are tuning in a little bit more. They're listening a little bit closer, and what you say that day really propels them uh, forward. It's, it's amazing. So
3: Yeah, um, it humbles you.
2: It really does. So I'm curious. So we're, we're talking about coaching right now. Maybe uh, taking from your coaches, because you had a bunch of them, I believe, Dave King, Bob Hartley, Lindy Ruff, uh, Bruce Cassidy, and one of my personal favorites, Gerard Gallant. Uh, Who were some of your favorite coaches, and maybe what are the things that made them your favorite?
3: Uh, I would say Dave King was probably one of my favorite ones uh, because he was very demanding, he was fair, he didn't care if you were a rookie or a veteran. He was a guy that would tell you how it is, and a lot of guys didn't like it. But, you know, uh, kind of like torts. You know, if you sucked, he's not going to sugarcoat it. He's going to tell you you suck. And if you were good, he's going to tell you you're good. Uh, you know, outside the arena, greatest guy. Uh, I have a lot of mir- admiration for this guy. He would go on a run. He would go and jog uh, every day. Every single day he'd go jogging. He broke his rib one time in Vancouver running and he slipped on ice, broke his rib, and he kept that streak alive. (laughs) I saw him in Germany, I want to say – Oh, twelve years after I played for him in Columbus, and uh, he's like, I asked him about the running streak, and I said, "Is it still alive?" He said, "Yep." He's like, I even coached in Russia, and I went and run, ran every morning. Uh, he had this routine, and he really stuck to it. But he was just a great man. I think he was a uh, he was a really good coach. I was really a student of the game. You always want to learn a lot about not only the North American game, but love Team Canada and loved the international game in general. So he brought a lot of different things to, uh, you know, the locker room that a lot of other coaches didn't necessarily bring just because of his knowledge of the international game. Uh, so I would say, it was, you know, as a pro, he was probably my favorite go- coach. My favorite person as a pro was probably Gerard Gallant. Nicest guy ever. Uh, I I hope he finds a team to stay and, you know, wins the Stanley Cup because he was – You know, obviously, great. You know, he was an awesome player to watch with Detroit when he played. But as a coach, he is such a player's coach. uh, I think every player in the NHL would love to play for that guy. So that was probably my favorite person as far as a coach that uh, was fun to have.
1: All right. Who's your least favorite? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding.
3: Uh, I I can tell you. (laughs) Uh Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, give it to us. I want to hear this. I was not a fan of Bob Hartley, honestly. He uh, was uh, probably as unfair as a coach. Not to me, uh, but, like, the stuff that he did in that locker room, man, it was, like, he, he definitely uh, – him and uh, – he, he had a distinct dislike for uh, Ilya Kovalchuk, and it was so apparent, and it was so unfair. Uh, and, you know, Atlanta at that time was a young team, not enough veterans, you know, really to uh, – stand up to him uh but yeah it was borderline uh, you know abuse to watch him interact with uh, kovi and kovi was the nicest guy and before i got to atlanta you know i heard all the stuff about kovalchuk and you know being selfish and stuff like that and then until i played with him i didn't realize how nice of a guy he was how genuine he was and how much he loved the game and he was a hard worker as well but it, it was just like it's that easy to ruin a player's reputation, right? You know, just to say the wrong thing to things to the media about a guy. But I think it was very unfair to Kovalchuk. So that he was probably my least favorite, just because of that. That's interesting. I, I you know,
1: I'm I'm curious because I've never asked you this before. But what was what was Atlanta like? Like not just the the city, but like I'm looking at the roster now, and like Kovalchuk was 20, Danny Heatley was 22, like. That's a, that's just a wild thing to think about. Like, yeah. what was, what was it like?
3: It, it wasn't, it wasn't good. Uh, it, it was a really weird time in the organization, you know, that was after, uh, Snyder's death, you know, that was the year that, uh, right. uh, in that car accident with Danny Heatley. So he, he was hurt, uh, rehabilitating his leg that year. It, it was just a weird cloud on top of the team. So yeah, it was very, yeah, it was, it was not a great experience, honestly. Well, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, to ruin the mood. I do have
1: I, – I have a follow-up. You, know, you got to tell people the uh, – you got to tell our audience the Scott Stevens story. Scott Stevens, Martin Brodeur story, the top ten.
3: <laughs> so that was – I want to say it was 2002. Uh, it was a weird, weird uh, situation. So we – I don't remember – two days before the game, I get a call from, uh, my mom and she tells me my dad is sick. And I was like, well, how sick? And she's like, well, it's like you got diagnosed with cancer and they're doing a surgery, you know, in two days. I'm like, what? I'm like, it came out of nowhere. So next morning, uh, you know, we're flying to Jersey and I go into Dave King's office. I was like, Hey, Kinger, I'm like, I'm sorry. Uh, my dad's getting, you know, he's got this big surgery. He got diagnosed with cancer. Is there any way I can, you know, fly over to see him? You know, post surgery. Uh, Kinger being a great guy, he's like, absolutely, family first. Don't worry about it. Uh, but we're playing in New Jersey, right? The next more, the next day. So I was like, I'll just fly from Jersey. Uh, and he's like, Yeah, no problem. So I go. We play against New Jersey, and. Uh, the game is tied. No, we're down by one and uh, it's four on four and <laughs> I talked to my dad before the game to see how he was doing and he's like, yeah, don't worry, I'm, I'll am i be okay but I'll be watching the game and he kind of like, you know, he was weak and he's like, hey, make sure you score a goal for me. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. Like, I'm a goal scorer. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're down, we're down three, three and it's four on four and, uh, you know, I'm on the ice and I don't know, I just kind of, picked up the puck with speed and four on four, there's more room and obviously I had good speed and I just kind of start skating up the ice and, you know, pass one guy, Oh, another guy. And then next thing you know, I got the, Oh my gosh, Ken Danico and uh, Scott Steven, and I'm coming full speed. And at this point I'm coming so fast. (laughs) There's no way I'm going to pull out. And I literally just try to get past Stevens and somehow he missed me. And then, you know, I'm going so fast through. And then, you know, Marty Brodeur is in that, which who puts Marty Brodeur against the Columbus Blue Jackets in 2002? <laughs> <laughs> There's no reason for for him to be in the net anyway. And uh, basically put it top shelf on him and scored. And it was, uh, it, it was a cool goal. But for me, I think the moment uh, – the fact that you know I had that conversation with my dad before the game, and that I was flying to see him after, it was pretty cool. So the next morning when I got to uh, Montreal, uh, it was really cool because he just woke up from his surgery and he kind of looked at me and he's like, "I saw your goal." Yeah, I saw your goal last night, kid. I was like, "Sweet." <laughs> so, that is yeah, the coolest thing.
2: That yeah. I, I just, I just, uh, not not the same dramatics, but I had a game down in Columbus and my favorite team as a kid was the San Jose Sharks and the Sharks were playing the afternoon Sunday game against the Blue Jackets and I was like begging my mom like we got to stay after this game you know we got to go see the Sharks she's like all right if you score fine we'll go to the game power play I just you know go to the net as I see a shot going rebound comes straight on my stick I I really would have had to blow it not to put it in the back of the net and got to go to a Sharks game. I still got the tickets, the game program, everything. Love love those parent
3: stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the great. uh, Those are the greatest. And I think, uh, you know, as you talk about parents and hockey, for me, some of my greatest memories uh, are those tournaments. Uh, You know, when my son was, uh, you know, with Belfry, and I remember all the tournaments, my wife would make a point – to stay home because first of all she hates the cold and she hates staying in hotels so denon and i always went out to tournaments just him and i and those were the best bonding moment we still talk about it today about like you know all the the good times we had in the hotels together him and i and you know learning how to drive at 12 year old in the empty parking lot after a team dinner you know these are all little bonding things that the uh, I think hockey is bigger than just the sport and making it to the next level. It's all these connection, you know, with dad or mom. Because, you know, I'm a dad. I connect on certain things more than my wife will do on certain things, and vice versa. And for me, you know, hockey was really that thing that brought us really, really close together.
2: How many games of knee hockey have you beat him in? I'm assuming it's countless by now. But uh, I know I would keep track of how many times I beat my kid in knee hockey. Get yeah, the mini sticks.
3: Yeah, I'm. I'm not a big fan of the knee hockey uh, games. I, we played them. We well, we played them back then uh, quite a bit, uh, but my knees would get pretty sore pretty quick. So uh, I'd cheat and stand up and just crouch for most of it. So uh, that would turn into full body contact knee hockey. So I definitely dominated. But now he's six foot four, so he might be able to take me on. <laughs>
2: How's his gym sessions going? Better question. <laughs>
3: Gym sessions. Nah, he doesn't go to the gym. He's not, he's not the, you know, he loves hockey, but he's not a kid that's going to be in the gym working out anytime soon. So, and again, that is okay with me. That's perfectly fine. When I was in his age at 16, I didn't know what a weight was yet. So it's all good.
1: All right, I'm curious. So obviously, uh, for those who may may not know, but I would assume most of our audience does, you made the transition from player obviously to uh, broadcaster. I'm curious like legitimately, I'm sure there's there's definitely pressure involved with being on TV or radio and all the things that come with that. Like is it comparable at all to a game or like how would you compare or contrast
3: those two things? Oh boy. Uh <laughs> I would say I was more nervous during my first broadcast than I was playing my first NHL game. Because yeah. it, it, um, It's not even close. <laughs> so, you know, hockey is uh, you've been playing, you've been doing it since you are a child. So it, it's just a game. You're just playing against different people. You know, television is something that I've never done in my life before. And all of a sudden, you go from Billy Davidge, who's like, a legend and everybody loves what you like who's this guy and you know it it was there's so many things in broadcasting that you would think would be simple they tell you relax it's okay just a conversation but it's not you know there's you know not only like the mic yet the audio and then you're talking to someone and then next thing you know, Brian is talking to me, but also have a producer in our <laughs> ear that is talking nonstop. And you're trying to think about what you're talking about. Try to listen to the guy next to you. Then you have to crowd in the background, making more noise. It was, uh, the transition was really, really hard. And I would say it probably took me about 30 games to get comfortable. Then uh, it was, uh, It was a big, big adjustment. And obviously, I would say by the, you know, by December, January, it became more natural. And then, you know, by the end of the year, obviously, we're having all kind of fun because it's second nature, right? It's kind of like riding a bike. But I would say the transition was extremely hard. And uh, it took a lot of patience uh, from, I think, you know, the viewers from the Blue Jackets, from Brian. Uh, and from myself, honestly, because I'm somebody that, you know, typically most of the stuff I do, I'm really successful at. And this one, man, it took me a while to really get my bearings. And it was a little frustrating, but, uh, really, really enjoyed the experience.
1: Well, I'm sure I'm speaking for all of us. You've done an amazing job and we can't look, we can't wait to hear you again next season. Whenever that may be, you've done a great job. Yeah, I
3: can't. Can't wait as well. Yeah, it's uh, like again, it's it's so much fun. Uh, you know, always helps when you have some success stories with the team as well. And I think uh, giving the climate that the team was on, you know, in July last year when everybody left and what they were able to accomplish this year definitely helped.
1: So for sure. All right, last final one to end on. We'll keep it light. How how does uh, it's the end of summer now? Obviously, like how how was your golf game this summer? I saw you golf the other day with Jeff Faboda from the Blue Jackets. He's a friend of mine. How was that? How's your game? How's your game?
3: My game is not good. <laughs> I actually, uh, I'm actually going for a lesson tomorrow morning with Ben, and, uh, because uh, I'm, uh, I'm someone that's always been very proud and think that I know it all and I can figure it out by myself. But uh, this year I've been humbled. Uh, didn't golf as much as I typically did. And uh, okay. yeah, I think golf is – a game where it's competition against yourself and you're so hard on yourself. It doesn't matter what the next, the guy next to you shoots. It's all about you and what you're doing. And I just want to get better. So now I finally signed up to take lessons. I took one already uh, two weeks ago and then I, get, I got another one tomorrow. So that's how my golf game's going, Dan.
2: <laughs> Golf is a humbling game, I hear you. Yes. Yeah, yes.
3: Yeah. Very, very Just mandatory. a
2: reminder, the ball does not move, so it shouldn't be that hard. The ball <laughs> that's
3: is very so stationary. Frustrating. So frustrating. I, that's the frustrating part is that you're like, okay, so I used to you know, shoot pucks that are moving, take one-timers without even looking at the puck, and now I can't hit a ball that is standing still in grass. Uh, but somehow yeah, we still find a way to make it hard. Awesome.
2: Well, this was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the conversation. I know you and Dan have known each other for quite some time in the Columbus area, but uh, probably don't, don't know this quite yet, but we give two minutes at the end of every episode to plug anything you want or talk about anything that you want. So two minutes is all yours. Whatever's on your mind.
3: Two minutes. Oh, boy. Crash. Or less. So Or less. Well, Where can people find you? You know, stuff like that. Where can people, okay, so you can find me at your local golf course, very likely, <laughs> uh, or uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, JLGP34, and uh, for everybody listening, this I got one for you. Dan, we didn't touch about it, but we're talking about, you know what, let's back up here.
1: Let's back we up. We talked
3: about skills, and your podcast talks about, you know, the mental part of the game, how important that is. And one thing, we talked about B-League hockey, and one thing that I realized...
1: There should be in the su- no. oh, That's what you realized.
3: Oh, 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 okay. In, in the summers, you know, uh, especially when I was pro, I remember I used to skate with a lot of, like, college guys or junior guys, AAA guys. And people don't realize the amount of skills that's in a game is ridiculous, obviously. But skills don't necessarily translate to success. And we'll see it in B-League all the time. You'll see some incredible hands, incredible speed, no smarts, right? And listen, I got hands of stone and I'll admit it. But somehow it's the reason true. that you this the reason that a player can be more successful during games or scrimmages is all upstairs. It's about how they think the game more than necessarily their skill set. So I'm all about your kids learning, you know, how to shoot a puck hard, how to, you know, do the kucherov and do all these moves and work on their hands and their skating. But have them learn the game. Read the game. Watch them games. Watch your favorite player's positioning over the fancy moves and the skating that he's doing. It is so much more valuable. So this is what I'm going to leave you with. Let's think a little bit more about positioning doing the little things right, instead of all the flashy stuff. How's that for you?
2: Beautiful. Perfect, perfect. Hey, we're gonna have to have you back on where we'll talk more about that. Um, all right. Absolutely. I, I go on that stuff all day. I mean, that we have our newsletter out. We've been talking a lot about that. Dan's gonna release here, one about being on your off hand as a winger and how advantageous that is. So we're, we're gonna have to have you back on soon. Absolutely.
3: Offhand is the way to go. I learned it in the men's league, baby. Left wing, righty. It's That's all right.
2: good. Well, it's helpful <laughs> when you shoot a puck like you can, JL.
3: <laughs> you got to uh, learn new guys.
2: positions. Go play goalie.
3: Oh, yeah. I have. Don't worry. I got the, I get the equipment. I did the same
1: thing. You know. My
2: brother left town, and he left his goalie bag here, so I've been playing tender.
3: It's Love the best.
2: it. It so awesome. It really is. Oh, I love doing the uh, FU energy when you stop your buddies. It's the best. (laughs) Absolute best. Thanks for coming on. We really
1: appreciate your time, and uh, we'll catch you soon. All right, guys. See ya.
2: See ya. ya. Thank you for tuning into the Hockey IQ podcast. We are Hockey's Arsenal, Greg Rieback and Dan Ducart. Together, we've come together to create a platform and a community to expand our hockey intelligence, hockey IQ, whatever you want to call it. Uh, We're very passionate about seeing this game played smarter and better and continue to develop itself uh, to the next level and staying on the cutting edge of things. So you can find us at Hockey's Arsenal on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We're also at Uh, Hockey'sArsenal.com. From there, you can find some resources and some options to work with us. We're excited to continue this. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, follow, and share. Uh, You can also join up for our newsletter as well, where we're going to tackle anything Hockey IQ related. So we're excited to have everyone here and continue to build.
0: That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockey'sarsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch you, Buttes, here next week for a brand new episode.